This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Monday, December 30th, 2019. On this day in the year 2000, the Miyazawa family was slaughtered inside their home in the Setagaya ward of Tokyo, Japan. Despite a large collection of available evidence, the murders have not been solved, and the brutal killer still walks free to this day. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the gruesome murders of the Miyazawa family, a horrific crime that still perplexes the Japanese public to this day. Let's go back to the Miyazawa home in Setagaya on December 30th, around 6 p.m. Forty-four-year-old Mikio Miyazawa picked the car keys off their hook. He called to his wife, 41-year-old Yasuko, and she shepherded their children, eight-year-old Nina and six-year-old Ray, towards the door. The family left their duplex completely unaware that they would never leave as a family again. They climbed into their car, buckled in, and pulled out of the driveway for the last time. They talked amongst themselves, excited for the coming holiday. New Year's was only a day away, and the Miyazawas had just a small bit of shopping left to do. They arrived at the nearest shopping center and wandered through the aisles. They enjoyed each other's company as much as they enjoyed pulling food and items off the shelves. While they thought they were preparing for a celebration, there was no way for them to have been prepared for what was soon to come. Once they had acquired every item on their list, the family returned to their vehicle and drove back to their home. As they approached the house, Mikio looked towards the backyard. The Miyazawa home was settled on the edge of a large and popular park with a skate park directly behind their house. Oftentimes, the skate punks made a racket and Mikio would have to chide them for bothering his family's peace. But as he looked towards the skate park that night, he saw it was empty. He believed his family would have a nice, quiet evening after all. He was wrong. Around 7 p.m., Yasuko called her mother, who lived in the other half of the duplex. They spoke for a short time, a pleasant conversation, nothing out of the ordinary. At 9.30 p.m., Nina went next door to watch a television show with her grandmother. When the program finished, Nina returned to her side of the duplex. Her grandmother, unaware that she would never see Nina alive again. At 10.38 p.m., Mikio logged into his work email, 
for the last time. That same night, a passerby heard raised voices emanating from the Miyazawa home. They believed it was simply a couple's spat and carried on as if nothing was out of the ordinary. Around 11.30 p.m., Yasuko's brother, who lived with their mother in the duplex, heard loud bangs echoing through the Miyazawa's walls. It sounded as if something heavy had fallen into the wall. Yasuko's brother listened for a moment to see if the sound continued, but all was silent. He brushed it off as unimportant and went about his night as usual. As the sun rose the next morning, New Year's Eve, Yasuko's mother picked up the phone to call next door, but the dial tone was completely non-existent, and when she tried to enter a number, the phone wouldn't even ring. The phone line had been cut. Perplexed, Yasuko's mother decided to contact her daughter the old-fashioned way. She walked out of her duplex and knocked on the front door of the Miyazawa home. She waited for a moment, but there was no reply. Using her own set of keys, Yasuko's mother unlocked the front door and entered, only to be greeted by a sight of absolute terror. Her son-in-law, Mikio Miyazawa, lay dead at the foot of the stairs, blood pooling around his corpse. Yasuko and her eight-year-old daughter, Nina, were at the top of the stairs, their bodies brutalized by the slashes of a knife. And the poor six-year-old boy, Ray, lay strangled in his bed. The entire Miyazawa family was dead. When we return, we'll explore the gruesome evidence the Miyazawa's killer left behind. And now, back to the story. On Saturday, December 30th, 2000, the Miyazawa family, 44-year-old father Mikio, 41-year-old mother Yasuko, 8-year-old daughter Nina, and 6-year-old son Ray, were brutally murdered in their own home in the Setagaya ward of Tokyo, Japan. Yasuko's mother found their corpses the next morning. When the police arrived, they were equally shocked by the brutality that had been committed against the Miyazawa family. But perhaps even more shocking was the staggering amount of evidence the killer left behind. The murder weapons, a broken sashimi knife, and a bloody kitchen knife were found in the Miyazawa's kitchen. Based on Mikio's wounds, the police concluded that the sashimi knife had been used to murder him alone. Once the knife had been broken, the killer discarded it in the kitchen and took one of the Miyazawa's own kitchen knives to finish the killing spree. The killer had also left behind every piece of clothing they had worn during the murders, a gray hat, a white shirt with blue sleeves, a black winter coat, a blue scarf, black pants, and a green fanny pack were all abandoned at the scene. The police described this as skater-style clothing, notable given the proximity of the skate park to the Miyazawa home. 
Strangely, the killer did not leave their shoes behind. However, they did leave bloody shoe prints all across the house. When police examined the prints, they discovered the killer's shoe was a very specific size, sold only in South Korea. The police also noticed a bloody towel that seemed unrelated to the victims. They believed it came from the killer, providing them with a possible DNA sample. Perhaps more bizarrely, in the upstairs bathroom, past the viciously mutilated corpses of Yasuko and Nina, the killer had left behind a solid, steaming mass of fecal matter. Altogether, the police had found the murder weapons, the killer's fingerprints on said murder weapons, the killer's clothing, the killer's specific shoe size, and the killer's DNA from both blood and feces. They had found everything police should need to solve a crime. Yet as time dragged on, the murder remained unsolved. The killer's prints and DNA couldn't be matched with any Japanese database, indicating that the killer was likely a foreign national. Given their specific shoe size, it seems likely that the killer was from South Korea, or at least had visited there at one point in time. This was particularly odd because the murders appeared to be premeditated. The phone line to the home had been cut, the killer had brought a change of clothes, and the sashimi knife used to do the killing had been purchased only two days before at a store only a few miles away. Despite this overwhelming pile of evidence, there was nothing the Japanese police could do. It seemed that the killer had arrived in Japan solely to murder the Miyazawas, then had left without being seen. Their motives were as mysterious as their identity, and to this day, somewhere in the world, they walk free. We can only hope that one day they will be caught. But for now, the poor Miyazawa family and their loved ones will have their questions unanswered and their justice unresolved. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more stories like this, check out ParCast Original, Unsolved Murders. Today in True Crime is a ParCast Original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Giles Hovseth, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.